Thought Leadership from PwC. Welcome to PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of our series focused on climate disclosures. This week, we're focusing on investor perspectives. There's, I think, a couple things that companies can think about. So, I mean, one of the things that probably will be really beneficial coming out of this is, particularly in the early stages, as they're looking through how to implement it, and investors are looking at how they're going to use the information and what does it actually mean and how does it change the perception of a company, is um, the engagement dialogue that could happen. I'll build on that and very much come back to this concept of own your narrative around this issue. Understand what your story is. My guests today are Hillary Eastman and Matt D. Giuseppe. Hillary and Matt's work with the firm focuses on board and investor engagement. Let's see what they had to say. Matt, Hillary, thanks so much for joining me today and love the topic we're talking about because there's so much focus on the climate proposal. But if you dig in to why all these organizations are focused on climate disclosures, it really comes back to investors and investor needs. So I think it's great we're going to bring that investor perspective. And Hillary, I have some follow-up questions from our survey that you appeared on the podcast on. So you're going to hear those weaved in too, because I think you really set some groundwork for now, some of what we're seeing. But maybe just to kick things off, and I'll ask this question to both of you, what types of themes are we hearing from investors about the three proposals? And our listeners have heard me talk about these, but just to re-level set, today we're going to be focused in on the proposals from the SEC, but also on the recent proposals from the ISSB and the EFRAG on behalf of the European Commission, which would be many of you would have heard us talking about is the uh, CSRD. So with all of that background, Hillary, why don't you go first? All right. Thanks, Heather. And thanks for having me uh, back again. I look forward to your survey questions. I think the um, the big thing on this that we have like stepping back to think through is that there's a lot of money going into ESG funds and a lot of investors are putting money into those funds and they want to know if they really are ESG friendly or not. So these climate disclosures are going to be really helpful for them to be able to understand that because right now there's a lot of really big gaping holes in corporate disclosure. So they don't really know what their um, greenhouse gas emissions are, how they're managing the risks, how they're, what their plans are. You know, companies are making commitments and it's unclear what, the, um, what their detailed plans are and how they're going to you know, meet those targets. So, so investors are really looking forward to this. Um, I guess a couple things on having three, I've been calling them the big three um, proposals. <laughs> the big three I like that terminology. <laughs> <laughs> and because I think people are looking at at all of them, um, some more than others. I think particularly uh, the US one and the international one. Um, and if you're in Europe, clearly the European version. But uh, investors are really going to have to be conversant in all of them because it's going to be like we, we have now with IFRS and US mm-hmm. GAAP. And so they're going to have to know what the similarities and differences are so they can make the adjustments accordingly. And there will, of course, be companies that get caught by all three if they're multinational companies, and that will be a challenge for them, but also for investors. Um, So I think there are a few areas that investors are trying to understand what does it mean um, practically uh, in terms of differences, like what does materiality mean? 
you know, what is the difference, the real difference between double materiality mm -hmm. and an enterprise value materiality um, or the U.S. definition of materiality? Uh, you know, how are those really different in practice? And over the long term, they probably aren't. Um, but day to day, when you're getting the the financial um, or annual reports that have all this information in it, you're going to have to be able to figure it out. Um, I think the other thing is that whether there's a link to the financial information or not. So the SEC has a new section in the mm -hmm. financial statements about it. There's a, a link with the ISSB and the IASB in terms of the financial implications. EFRAG has a bit of that, but not quite as strongly. So, um, so I think some of those things are going to be what investors are looking at and trying to understand and probably pushing companies to be a bit more consistent and comparable, even if the standards themselves don't require them to do that. All right. Very helpful. And that, how about you? Yeah, I think when I think back to all of the conversations I've really ever had around ESG and data, investors' desire for clear, consistent, comparable, high-quality data has been what they've been pounding the table with for really decades at this point. And, and these three proposals together really are a momentous step in that direction, definitely checking off the clear, consistent, and high-quality. As Hillary said, the comparable is... is is very close and I think it, it will get there and, and there will be a lot of effort made in the investment community to make sure that they're finding that comparable element to it. Um, when it comes to the SEC uh, proposal, I was talking to one investor who said, you know, we, we asked for evolutionary, we got revolutionary, um, especially with that, with that deep link into the financial statements and, and trying to understand it. So I, I think, you know, largely what we're hearing from the investor community is that they're excited about this data and about the opportunities that it opens up for them to, to think differently about their investments. All right. Well, Hillary, I'm going to go back to you. And actually, this is one of my survey questions, uh, follow-up questions, because what I'm curious is if you're hearing anything from investors now that you would say is sort of inconsistent with what you would expect to hear based on those survey results? Actually, no. Um, uh, we did the survey back in September, 2021, and the ISSB announcement came in November at COP26, and uh, the prototypes came out then, um, you know, SEC and EFRAG rules or proposals came out more recently than that. So, uh, but looking back at some of the questions that we asked about whether you need information about, um, you know, consistency with financial statements um, or implications on the business model, do you want a recognized framework? Do you want companies to have to apply it all in its entirety, not be able to pick and choose what they report? A lot of those questions that we asked are consistent. The responses were consistent with what we're hearing now and that they do want that recognized, you know, they want a standard. They want to know that companies are applying it all. They want uh, to know that it's reliable and that there's assurance on it. And so we can have debates about which level of assurance and which parts, but uh, but generally, they, they need to know that they can trust the information. They can have comfort in it when they're using it. All right. And then how about any big gaps in the proposals compared to what we heard that investors wanted and then what you actually are seeing in the proposals? Sounds like no, based on what you just said, but just want to close the loop on that. There's a lot in the proposals. Yes. So there's probably more <laughs> in the proposals than they uh, would have consciously asked 
for. Uh, I think there will probably be some things in the application of them where they would have expected that they'll get something um, that they might not actually see in practice. And I'm thinking that kind of thing will come out because of differences by industry or differences in interpretations of materiality. You know, we're hearing mm-hmm. some investor you know, questions around what materiality means in the uh, context of financial statement materiality with regards to climate risk and and different interpretations by investors versus corporates. And you know, so I think we'll always have that. That's just kind of what reporting's about, I think. Yeah, right. I, I do think investors are going to be on the lookout for boilerplate language in, in this case and, and sort of, you know, to, to Hillary's point, is does this actually elicit the type of disclosure that they're interested in? I know one of the criticisms under the current regime and some of the interpretive bulletins that have been out there is that it hasn't really resulted yet in the sort of disclosure and detail that the investment community was looking for, which is why there, there was sort of this desire for more. And I think, you know, the what I've heard is as the, the rule is written, everyone is very happy with sort of the outcome and with the possibility that there will be that little detail that they're looking for. Um, but they will certainly be on the lookout for um, whether or not that actually manifests itself. So Matt, I'm going to go to you with the next question. And this, I almost presupposed in my intro, but I want to hit it anyway, because the SEC stance in the proposal is that investors are demanding this information and they have a lot of statistics they quote about responses they got to their invitation to comment and where the investors weighed in. Is that, and again, I feel like we've mostly answered that, but is that what you're hearing as you're interacting with investors, that this really is probably one of the most important, if not the most important sort of gap in reporting right now? I I am hearing that very much so, that this is the information that investors want. And what I think people frequently overlook, actually, is is this is the information that the investors' clients are asking for. So the, you know, beneficial owners um, and the asset owners are asking for this information about their portfolios as well. Um, Hillary, I know in the in Europe, you know, there's actually required disclosure um, around, you know, investor portfolios uh, and, and their climate footprint and that's coming up. And so it's not just that investors want this information to include it in their investment process and their valuations of companies, but they also need it in order to meet the demands of their clients and some of their regulators. All right. Very interesting. So we have spent a lot of time talking to clients and getting feedback on their perspectives on the proposals. When I say clients, clearly we have investor clients as well. I I meant that in the context of preparers. What are you guys hearing from investors in terms of either, you know, places where they are hearing companies are struggling and it's something that's very important to them so they they still would want it or other places where maybe the investors are saying yeah we wouldn't necessarily be looking for that anyway and some a couple examples of that would be for me at least I know there's a lot of questions, concerns, um, I could go on about the bright line 1% threshold um, for the financial statement disclosures in the SEC proposal. Hillary, you also mentioned materiality. I think that's another place where, you know, there is concern. And I think maybe a third I'm going to throw out there is I think companies are struggling with just this concept of what is severe weather and not in terms of, yes, you know, a hurricane is severe weather, but what if you always had hurricanes? So 
do you start with a baseline? Is it only, you know, is it all hurricanes? Is it only ones that are quote unquote abnormal? And some of those may be more implementation questions. So just curious what sense you're getting from investors in terms of how important some of these aspects of the proposal are to them. And Hillary, I'll go back to you. Uh, those are all really good questions. And I think that, that we will see some, um, you know, as I said before, some implementation issues, and we'll probably have to give it a bit of time to bed down, you know, give it a couple years um, to see and have it evolve once we start seeing what companies do disclose. But the, I know investors, these are going to be costly to implement. Some will be more costly than others, because some companies are already applying things like TCFD. So it'll mm-hmm. be less costly for those. Uh, but this will add more to that because you're, they're going to have to have the systems. There's, you know, it's not just going to be an Excel spreadsheet. Um, it's going to be, you know, proper systems and processes, data, uh, and good quality data. And some of that data just isn't available yet, or it isn't at the quality that it needs to mm-hmm. be to have this kind of mass type of disclosure. Um, you raised the point, which is really, really interesting one on what is an effect of climate change mm-hmm. versus uh, something else. You know? right. So if you have a company that is, I mean, one example that came up a few years ago when um, we first started looking at this quite a lot, um, when we started getting a lot of investor questions on climate disclosures was how, if you have a company that, that ships its product by sea, and suddenly there are a lot more um, hurricanes, typhoons, mm-hmm. you know, whatever in um, as they're shipping it around the world. And some of those ships will lose some of that inventory that's sitting on there in the containers and it will fall into the ocean and they'll have to write that off. Is that, I mean, that extreme weather, it could be from climate change. It could be from just a fluke storm. It could, mm-hmm. you know, could be a number of things. So is it a write-off because of climate change or is it a write-off because you had, you know, because of the way you ship? I mean, it's right, right. Companies are going to have to make that assessment. And I guess one of the things that we um, probably, you know, companies will need to think about and investors will need to think about it. And I know are thinking about it is, does it matter that it's climate change or does it matter that the inventory is lost and that you have to write it off mm-hmm. and, um, and just put a little bit more color around what happened, and then the investor can make their own assessment. So it's there's going to be, I think, a lot of tricky implementation questions like that. Yeah, you know what's so funny, Hillary? You made me think. Uh, one of my favorite books is Taipan by James Clavell. And I don't know if either of you have read it, but there's a huge typhoon in that book. And a lot of people are very negatively financially impacted. And that book is set, I think, in like late 1800s, maybe I can't remember the exact time frame, but that is clearly not a modern phenomena that there are typhoons and other weather events that are impacting business. So it's a great exactly. point yeah. there that it, there is sort of this um, intertwining of business, you know, regular climate, climate change, and, and kind of teasing that out. Matt, what are you hearing on that point? Yeah, and I think you actually hit on something that's really important in the rule. And I know it's not exactly responsive to your question, but that description about sort of how the management team and the preparers have thought through these issues is really where the opportunity lies, I think, mm-hmm. for, for a lot of issuers, is to tell a story around how you're thinking about your business and strategy in the context of these issues 
And what is sort of standard practice and what you were doing all along versus where are you moving to that next level and maybe differentiating yourselves from your peers in the industry in terms of taking those things into account or creating opportunities that didn't otherwise exist. So I, I can't discount that enough in terms of you know, the opportunity that I, I think for, exists for preparers. I, I do think from an investor perspective too, though, um, and Hillary hit on this, you as well, that cost element of compliance and trying to figure out, A, what that is. And for smaller companies, you know, maybe not quite smaller reporting companies, but just above that line, mm-hmm. you know, will these costs be material? Are you ready to do these things? Um, because, you know, we came back to early, they want the clear, consistent, comparable, high quality data. Um, but they recognize that that, that isn't, the market isn't set up currently to collect this information in the way that, um, you know, companies want to do it. It's why scope three isn't, you know, something that everybody's pounding the table saying you should have included that. Um, the investor community recognizes that there's still a lot of innovation, a lot of development that needs to happen to be able to meet their, their expectations. Um, so I think, you know, that's one area where you're seeing concern. We are seeing some investors too question that bright line. You know, some are like, oh, I'd love a 1% threshold for everything. Um, <laughs> right. But I know I'm not going to get that. Um, so, so there, there needs to be that, that give and take in, in terms of, you know, balancing the desire for really good, high quality information with the costs of providing it with some of the, you know, balancing of, you know, this isn't necessarily something that's universally existing in terms of a disclosure standard, as Hillary said materiality is something that people feel comfortable with, um, right? As long as it doesn't result in boilerplate. Well, and Matt, to your point about things not currently be existing, one of the interesting things about this, uh, all of these proposals, well, I'll say the CSRD and the SEC proposals, the timelines are so fast. And even if there's, let's say, a one-year delay, I'm not saying there is um, going to be for the SEC proposal, but if there was, it's still really fast. What is the investor view of that? Obviously, they want this information as soon as possible. But I think there's the flip side of that is that they want the information to be high quality. They don't want it to be boilerplate, You know, all of those types of things. And potentially a little more time actually maybe would result in, you know, higher quality information. So what are you hearing on that? Yeah, this is one of those areas where it does feel really fast, but also really slow. Yes, um, fair point. Know, I, I remember in the early 2000s, I was writing letters to companies asking them to respond to the CDP survey. So the idea of, which was the carbon disclosure yep. project back then, for those who don't know that the acronym <laughs> soup. Um, but th- the concept of investors being interested in this information is not necessarily new. So there's been a, a huge waving flag that this is something that you will have to collect and provide at some point. In fact, many companies do. Many companies, when it comes to responding to, to the CDP survey, already get some level of assurance around their collection of these data because it's necessary to get your highest score on that survey. Um, and so I think that was some of what the SEC was saying in, in their release was, this isn't a, a brand new concept or a new idea, but at the same time, elevating it to that level of, you know, being ready for assurance or, you know, sort of being clear, consistent, comparable and, and putting all those structures around it is not something that happens at the blink of an eye. Um, and so I think there is a, a recognition that that timeline will need to reflect sort of the level of effort. 
um, across the market, not just at the large and mega cap companies, because the, those companies, yes, they've been doing TCFD reports. They've been responding to the CDP um, because there's been market demand. But investors tend to look at the large and mega cap companies when they're sort of setting policy, setting mm-hmm. expectations, um, even around you know broader governance issues. As you get smaller in company size, the expectations tend to change. Um, so, you know, having something this universal, I think it, it's worth the investor community recognizes that it's worthwhile looking at sort of balancing the time to implement with the desire for that high quality data. And Hillary, are you hearing the same? Yeah, yeah. I guess you have probably two two camps of investors, some who really want this information because they want climate change to be addressed and they want it to mm-hmm. stop. Um, and then, you know, so they don't want a delay. They want as companies to do their best, give their best shot to getting the information out there and doing it. And then it will evolve and get more robust over time. And then you've got others who say, well, actually, that's pretty um, not a good outcome to have inaccurate information or potentially, you know, guesses in the market um, by corporates. They should make sure they have the time to have put those right systems and processes and data and everything in place so that they can be confident when in what they're reporting. So the the issue of climate, I find it really tricky because we don't want uh, kind of less accurate or less robust reporting Mm -hmm. out there. But at the same time, climate change, you know, all the signs are there that it's, it's happening, and it's happening more quickly and more severely than we thought. So you don't want to delay getting that information out there so that the the business response, um, and investors moving capital around to, um, to address the issue, you know, is, is then further delayed. So it's a, it's a tricky one, I think. I think there's also actually an interesting element here in bifurcating the actual data disclosure versus some of the strategy governance mm-hmm. type disclosures that come that are required. It, you don't need to wait to incorporate climate into your strategic planning decisions. And you don't have to wait to think about sort of how do you organize the governance both in the management team and at the board level around this topic. And you don't have to wait to bring these issues to the board more often, right? And so I think there's some element there, too, from the preparer and issuer side is thinking about sort of, yes, there's that element around the data, and that's a very big lift. But some of these other strategy governance risk management elements are things that can be incorporated today. And there's actually a value to doing that because you get to take a few at-bats before you have to start putting it in your disclosures, right? Um, and you can think about, does this work for us? Is this the right way? so that you're not caught sort of putting a, a brand new structure or, or governance policy in place in that disclosure the first time around. Well, and Matt, to that exact point, I was interviewing Rich Good, who's GHG specialist um, for the my last podcast. And he was talking about uh, scope three and saying, you know, the first time you measure it, maybe you can only get 80% of the way there. And I said, that's fine as long as that's not for your SEC reporting. Like you don't want to be, you know, telling the SEC, oh, sorry, I could only get 80% of the way there. So a few trial runs, you know, are helpful in all of these places. Actually, though, on that point of GHG and the GHG protocol, and then we mentioned TCFD earlier, you know, when we think about financial information, I think investors don't necessarily have the same level of financial literacy as the accountants preparing the financial statements. But I do think there is a baseline presumption of financial literacy and that, you know, it's GAP or it's US GAP or it's IFRS and, and you know, people know how the frameworks work. 
what is your general sense of knowledge in terms of some of the underlying, I'll call it documents and theories and, and support specifically actually for the GHD protocol, because I think that's a lot more detailed, but even for TCFD and what TCFD is trying to achieve, how would you guys sort of rate where people are and, and where you think they may need to get to as this information becomes more widespread? I think there's probably quite a way to go. I think both, I mean, on the corporate side, as well as on the investor side, these are complex issues and it's always changing. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but keeping up with all the <laughs> reports and the yes. new information that's out there and you think one thing and then you find out, oh, it's actually, that's not right. The, it's actually more severe than that, or it's less severe, you know, I mean, right, it's, right. It's hard. So if you're pr trying to put that in a model and then price the security based on that, and it's going to be changing, it's, it, it's a bit, a uh, bit of a wild west at the moment, I think, uh, to kind of use that overused phrase, but it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to take a little bit more time, I think, for people to figure it out. Well, and I do think your point that there's not just investors who need to upskill is totally fair. I I was in no way implying. I think everyone, <laughs> everyone yeah. involved needs to upskill. But it has been interesting to me as I've dug in more to some of the, you know, I'll call it supporting documents. Uh, there's a lot there and a lot that's presumed. And it's going to be important when these numbers are being prepared and used that people are starting from at least some type of common ground. So. I think it's also important to think about which type of investor you're talking to. Over the past five years, there's been sort of emerging of the stewardship and sort of equity analysts, buy and sell side functions. But in a lot of shops, they're still relatively distinct. And if you ask anyone sort of from a stewardship perspective about the TCFD, they know it. They know it in detail. They've probably read multiple reports and compared them. If you ask someone that's, you know, in the portfolio manager seat or in, in sort of traditional analyst seat, TCFD might not be something that's come across their radar with a, a lot of frequency. Um, whereas if you ask someone in the stewardship seat sort of for, you know, detailed understanding of U.S. gap and sort of how these issues come up in that context, they're not going to be as in tune to it as someone who's been sort of in the portfolio manager or, or sort of analyst seat. And so I think that's actually a real challenge for companies is to understand how to put their contact, their communication in the context of the investor that they're talking to um, and what they're looking for. Because this is one of those areas where you start to see sort of that merging of the sort of traditional financial and the ESG are very much coming together um, in a way that requires a, a more robust thinking about how to deliver a message in the context of what the information is going to be used for. Well, and I think also to that point, you discussed earlier that in some ways there's an opportunity for companies to, to think about risks, think about strategy. And I do think you know, on some level, some of the, the disclosures could be viewed as onerous. And there's a lot of required disclosures about assumptions, methodologies, and inputs. And, you know, the list is quite long. But on the other hand, because everyone's sort of starting from a lower level of knowledge, I think it, that is also an opportunity to be disclosing all that information so that then, you know, your users at least are sort of starting from the same place that you are in terms of how you're thinking about it. So let me move then to some sort of bigger picture questions. And maybe the first one is information overload. So Hillary, you made your point about the big three proposals lot, you know, there's going to be a lot, we're going to go from a dearth of information to 
you know, an excess of information, particularly. And so how are investors thinking about managing that, particularly maybe if a company is going to wind up reporting under more than one of these regimes? Yeah, yeah. And we have to still figure out what the kind of equivalence will be for that. So will, you know, ISSB be allowed for FPIs in the US, for example, I know it's a question the SEC has. And, and so and we'll see that I think, discussion happening with regulators around the world. But in it's going to be, I mean, if you look at the amount of data, narrative and, and quantitative data that's going to come out, it's going to be immense. So there's probably going to be quite a lot of um, trying to assess, understand what does this actually mean? I mean, if you look at some, you know, some portfolio managers have a couple hundred stocks in their portfolio and they're going to have to read all this stuff. So Mm -hmm. there will probably be need to be some way to distill that down. So I think companies are going to need to be very succinct and point to the the top things that they want someone to know, because it's kind of their chance to tell their story and make sure that something that's really important doesn't get buried in all of that. I, you know, there's already a, an industry of, you know, people coming through looking at the data points and kind of pulling them together to try to bring some comparability and consistency to it. Um, so, you know, ESG ratings agencies are, are one of those, but all the data aggregators, data pro- third-party data providers are doing that kind of thing. So there will be, probably even more of a, an impetus for them to do that because there will just be so much out there. Um, and I think that's the that's one of the biggest challenges for companies is losing control of, of that because it's getting analyzed and put into some other format, that, uh, a standardized format that a third-party data aggregator provides to investors and investors buy this stuff up all the time. So, <laughs> um, so being able to tell their story and, and what it means for them will be helpful because what's going, you know, what the risk is, is that the, you know, you'll see a scope one, two or three, for example, greenhouse gas emission and a company might have a good reason for where they are and what the magnitude is. Um, and, you know, or maybe the intensity ratio or something, and they will have a story, you know, a reason for that. Once it gets into the data aggregator system, though, that story is gone. So mm-hmm. it has to stand on its own. And, um, but, but given the amount, just the sheer, back to your question, the sheer volume of data, I don't see us getting away from that. It's going to be a, um, you know, a real challenge, and for, especially for investors, global investors that are trying to understand all three uh, reporting regimes, it's going to be really, really tricky. And Matt, you probably have views on that coming from that side. <laughs> yeah, I, I think there's going to be uh, initially a, a rush to cut and slice all of this data and try to figure out how to put it together in a way that's meaningful from an investment theory and sort of perspective, right? Um, and that's going to be one element of it. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation there. There's going to be a lot of sort of oddball and sideways questions that are going to come into companies based on the way the information's been slicing. Um, so I think, you know, they're going to find themselves answering questions that they had never even conceived of even when making the disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sort of how quickly you can sort of ramp up your internal processes to be able to respond is going to be important. I think what's also important is that companies are going to see themselves being rated. Hillary mentioned the ESG sort of raters and rankers in a way that's new and different. Um, that's going to be a, a little less comfortable. If you think about sort of a lot of the ESG data and the rankings that exist right now, a lot of the questions are binary, right? Because you don't have that comparable information. It's, you know, do they have targets or not? 
not is, you know, what is the target as a percentage of their, you know, current emissions versus where they're trying to be in 2050, um, which is a type of sort of detail that you can get into when you can look at that information universally. Um, and you, you know, aren't required, you aren't sort of relying on the company's own independent judgments and questions and sort of putting out their numbers and those sorts of things. So I think that's one area too, where it's going to be very different in terms of the raters and rankers that exist getting into a lot more detail than they have in the past. And again, that also to Hillary's point, making it more important that the company own their narrative and understand sort of what underlies their, their position and the way that they're being ranked so that you can provide that, that communication back. Well, so Matt, I have a follow-up question to that because with all of these different disclosures out there and, and preparers have so much to think about, what are some of the top things that a preparer should be keeping in mind in terms of what they most would want to convey as an investor is thinking about them? I think first and foremost is how does your approach differ from what you understand to be your peers? And how do you feel like you've taken a unique approach to using this information to inform your strategy. Um, I think it, a lot of it's going to be about how do you communicate that these that climate risk is something that's part of your strategic planning process, not something that happens alongside or after it. And I think these detailed disclosures are, are potentially going to make it much more evident who's sort of thinking about these topics when they're making an investment decision versus who's thinking about these topics after they've made the decision and they need to figure out how to put it into their disclosure. Um, so I think that's going to be, you know, sort of front of mind for most repairs is how do you, how do you, how do you use this information in your current process? And then how mm -hmm. do you make sure that's clearly communicated in a way that's beneficial for the organization? I think the making it relevant to your business and explain how it is relevant to your business. Is good. And that came up in our investor survey too, because I think a lot of investors are really struggling with some of this on why does this matter for this company? And, you know, like in the UK firm, we've recently done some analysis of TCFD reporting for the first um, reporters um, in the FTSE 350. And one of the observations that we have is that there's, not much proportionality, regardless of industry, you know, they all have to do it. So, but you'll see some companies that are in an industry that's not very highly affected by climate change, or at least not right now, and they're disclosing a lot. And so you're, you know, you're looking at it going, okay, so they're disclosing all of this. So it must be really important to their business. But then when you start reading what they're doing, it's just, you know, a lot of it is that boilerplate yes. that we talked about before. And so, right. so I think that, um, you know, so companies really need to show the relevance to the business, how it is being embedded in strategy, how they're overseeing it and managing the risks. And, and I mean, it's all the same stuff we're always talking about on any other kind of disclosure, but it's just with uh, climate because we're all, you know, people are struggling to try to figure out what mm -hmm. does this actually mean. It's even more important, I think, for companies to just go out and say it, even if they might think it's obvious to them because they're living and breathing it every day. It's just the way they communicate that to the outside world is going to be important. Hillary, I think you hit on actually a really important point in all of this, which is just because the disclosure is out there doesn't mean that this is going to be a highly material risk to your business on the first order. Some of this mm -hmm. may be second or third order impacts where there are milestones that you're watching. But if you don't set up that disclosure in that way for the investor community, they could misinterpret sort of the information that you're putting out there. And as you said, think that this is a much bigger issue than it is for the organization. 
So I think that's going to be the challenging thing, especially in the, the U.S. environment, which, you know, has its challenges. But being out there and being very clear about sort of independent of the disclosure, why you've set up the structures the way you have relative to your risk assessment uh, will be very, very important. I think that's a great point. And uh, Hillary, I read your report on TCFD. I thought it was fascinating. So we will make sure to include a link in the show notes because I definitely encourage our any of our listeners, preparers or investors to take a look because I do think there's some interesting insight in terms of how those companies uh, approach their disclosures and, and what you guys found. There was a few surprising, at least what I thought were surprising findings. So Yeah, there were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so definitely we will uh, include that. So another question that I think from a company perspective would be of interest is how analysts are currently using this information, but even more so once there's so much more information out there, how we would expect them to be incorporated, incorporating this information in their process as they're looking at a company. Yeah, so I think there are a few different ways that analysts are going to be using and incorporating this information. Um, first and foremost is around understanding really, you know, what the company's commitments are, what their plans are to achieve those commitments, and then what that means from, for a CapEx perspective, right? Because most of these commitments can't be, um, achieved simply without making an investment. And in fact, you know, when you look at the SEC disclosure, you can understand what those investments are relative to, you know, changes in business practice versus, um, using off offsets or SRCs, right? And you can look at the market there and understand sort of how that might play into the compact. So there's some very direct impacts there that you can understand. Another way that they're, they're going to be using the information is on that strategy side of it, right? You're going to have much more disclosure around sort of the company's business strategy and how it's going to be impacted. And you'll be able to make some assumptions about sort of where the company might need to be going or, or, you know, investing or, or lowering their investments, all of that will play in. But then what I think what's often overlooked is the total mix of information that's going to exist in the market is actually going to change, right? If you have every company disclosing the impact of warming environment on something, a key input, like say grain, mm -hmm. you have a very different perspective on what's happening in the global economy and how that might impact your portfolio on the second and third order. So I think you're gonna see analysts first using some of that direct information. You know, They may be weighting their portfolio based on risk objectives or, or climate objectives. Um, they'll be looking at that CapEx, but then they'll also be over time working in sort of that macro picture, which I think is going to, again, lead to some very interesting questions back to companies that they might not have anticipated because they're not necessarily looking sort of a, across you know several different industries to, to understand that, that impact. I think if I could just add to that, I was reading a research report earlier today, actually, that was looking at the link between climate change and inflation expectations and how if we've got climate change affecting food supply, for example, then that's going to rise up, you know, increase the price of food. So it's going to increase inflation if you're looking at CPI and some of the major factors that go into CPI. Uh, so climate change can have a real economic effect broadly mm -hmm. in the macro economy, not just the effect on the entity itself. Uh, and they were also looking at given where we are, the um, investment that needs to be made to reach net zero, that a 20, in their analysis, 
2050 is not achievable. It's more like 2060, 2065 before we can get to net zero. So, so I think analysts are starting to, you know, come up with models to be able to uh, assess these things, both in terms of company impact, the economic impact, and also the timing of when net zero or, or you know whatever the commitment or the target is might happen. So. Yeah, definitely a lot to think about. All right, two final topics uh, for you guys. And one of them is, I'd say, a little peripheral to what we're talking about here, uh, but still very important. And that would be shareholder resolutions. So I know we're increasingly seeing shareholder resolutions in the area of climate and you know requiring um, disclosure of climate. What is sort of the latest that we're seeing this uh, proxy season, Matt? Yeah, in the U.S. this proxy season, we're actually seeing some really interesting developments. There are some proposals around climate that address sort of, I'll call them more acute risks to an organization that are receiving um, incredible levels of support. 80, 90 percent of shareholders voting in favor of these proposals and, and looking for more information. There are other proposals that address more sort of tangential risks, um, if you think about sort of like scope three emissions focused or those types of things, they're receiving less support than they maybe received last mm. year. So the overall sort of headline that you're seeing right now is that there's a dip in support for ESG proposals um, overall. And when you sort of look at it in aggregate, that is happening. But when you break down the data, you'll see that you know, there are going to be more proposals this year than there were any year previously. That's a result of the November SEC staff bulletin. And those proposals are addressing a broader range of topics. So looking at them as sort of all the environmental proposals or all of the climate proposals actually produces a really, you know, um, confusing result relative mm -hmm. to what companies are experiencing. And so I think when you start breaking it down, you're seeing the investment community get much smarter about what information they want and why they want it in various different industries. Um, and that's actually a good thing for companies, because when these proposals come in, they have a better sense of sort of what the market expectation is. They're not saying, oh, we got a climate proposal. We better implement it. We can say the proposal is asking us to do this. We understand it in the context of, of sort of the broader market expe expectations. Hillary, are you seeing anything else from a global perspective? I think it's probably similar. There's a lot more. I mean, there is a lot on on climate and environmental issues or social issues. Um, I think uh, like in the UK, we're seeing still a lot on pay. Um, and there's a lot of conversation around linking pay to ESG metrics. So, um, so I think it's it's similar. I was just going to add to what Matt was saying too that on these on the resolutions, what, you know, once once investors have a better feel from the disclosures for how companies are dealing with climate risk and what their plans are and what the effect is, I think they will um, be able to probably have you know have those more informed shareholder resolutions and more targeted areas of focus where uh, it would be really helpful for companies, but also really helpful for shareholders because then they'll they'll know where they need to focus and what they need to push for rather than uh, at the moment it's kind of everything I can possibly get because I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to watch where that micromanagement line sort of emerges because you know large yeah. investors are loath to support proposals that they see as micromanaging but with all of this information it'll be very interesting to watch where that line 
drawn. Yeah, I feel like this is another research report one of you may want to <laughs> dig into and, and release. I know I would read it if you did. So um, if you're looking for work, uh, this this could be a good place. So a couple of final questions then. Hillary, back to you for this one. And it's kind of bringing full circle where we started which is global alignment among these three, these big three proposals and, you know, SEC, ISSB and, and EFRAG. And you mentioned equivalency. So I have a specific question about that. But, you know, if we step back and look at the proposals, there's a lot of similarities. There's definitely also differences. And if you are an investor, how are you thinking about this and how important is it for those to come together? It, I think it's important for preparers too, but curious what your perspective is uh, from from investors. Uh, I think it's it, investors. I mean, the investment community is global, and they are generally looking at companies across jurisdictions. And so, having global comparability will be um, extremely helpful and important for them. So, you know, and, and we're talking about a global issue, too. So it's mm -hmm. important to be able to assess what a company in the U.S. versus a company in France versus a company in India is doing and be able to see which one do you think is, um, you know, handling it better or not, or, you know, or what even can they learn from each other? Right. And if you can tell that from the disclosures, that would be uh, really helpful. So I think this concept of, you know, global comparability, global alignments, um, or at least minimizing the mm -hmm. differences. I mean, I was involved with the FASB IASB convergence project when I was at the <laughs> IASB and it was, you know, there are some kind of easy wins when you're trying to align mm -hmm. and there are some that are trickier and the ones that are trickier are definitely the ones that are the more cultural differences, cultural sensitivities, legal sensitivities, mm -hmm. but there are some things that are genuinely just wording issues right that you can you know so and to the extent that you cannot be saying things differently when they mean the same things and vice versa you know those are easy wins that I think that the three organizations could come together and agree on I but totally know, agree with that how about equivalency then because I do think you know as we've been thinking about the SEC proposal at least since you know foc the U.S. focus there's sort of three parts to it there's sort of the risk and governance discussion there's the GHG discussion and then there's the footnotes and it seems like even if you can't get to equivalency for all three of those even one could be helpful for for preparers. But how would our inv investors going to feel if in some cases they're getting the SEC information, in other cases maybe it's a TCFD report that's fulfilling part of it? Will they be able to work with that? That's a good question. I think it goes back to what I was saying before that if I, I think we'll end up at a place where they just are going to have to do like what they do with IFRS mm -hmm. and US GAAP. They just have to know that there are some, I mean, some assume that they're identical. And we know that that's not the case. <laughs> some assume that they are, um, but you know, but the those who know that they're not identical know where the big differences are, particularly for the industries that they're covering, so that they they know what adjustments they need to make. And it's, I think, we'll end up in the same place with this because I, um, I think it's there will be differences, and partly it will be jurisdictional differences, regulatory differences that just have to be in place, and and investors will understand and appreciate that they they work with different jurisdictions right. and laws. So they, they know how that works. So I think it's just a matter of making sure that it's clear what the, what the differences are so that they can make the adjustments 
uh, accordingly. And I think you know they don't want to, and companies won't want this to happen to uh, you know be engaging with a company that's in the U.S. and asking them questions about the European Commission, yes. know, the CSRD rules once those come in, and, and that would just get embarrassing for everybody. So it's, but it's they're just going to have to uh, learn what the differences are and. and appreciate that. But I think there will probably end up with some voluntary um, alignments, even if the standards themselves are different. Mm -hmm. Because again, investors will ask for some information that's just not required in a particular jurisdiction, but because it's presented by other companies in the industry elsewhere, some companies will do it voluntarily. Right. Well, and beneficial to everyone. Go ahead, Matt. Uh, sorry, I was just one area uh, that I think U.S. preparers can pay particular attention to is the industry-specific metrics um, that you're seeing um, in European drafts. That that is something that investors are very interested in. They recognize that climate uh, impacts every industry differently. We talked about that some mm-hmm. more more than others. Um, so I think if there's one area that U.S. preparers especially can pay attention to is is that element. All right. Good advice. So final question then, and this is again in recognition of our audience that's primarily preparers. Given all you are seeing coming from the investor lens, what's your final piece of advice to preparers as they're kind of looking at all these different proposals? And uh, Hillary, I can go to you first. There's, I think, a couple things that companies can think about. So, I mean, as they're as they're responding, there's not much time, so they might not be able to do this in the time that they're <laughs> responding. But I think one of the things that probably will be really beneficial coming out of this is, particularly in the early stages, as they're looking through how to implement it, and investors are looking at how they're going to use the information and what does it actually mean and how does it change their perspe- perception of a company, is um, the engagement dialogue that could happen. You know, I think um, some companies are doing. ESG focused or climate focused investor days or mm-hmm. investor calls, and I think that that um, that education will need be needed, um, and that understanding of different views and expectations will be needed. And I think it's similar to you know how companies do it with financial reporting. When a new major accounting standard comes in, they'll have a special call sometimes yes. to explain this is what it means. These are the new line items you'll see. This is how it compares to the previous accounting. And I think that that kind of thing, you can use that kind of model to for this these disclosures as well. Definitely good advice. And Matt, how about from you? Yeah, I'll build on that and very much come back to this concept of own your narrative around this issue. Understand what your story is, how you've incorporated these issues into your business and strategy and be able to tell investors not only how you've done it, but how that, you know, give them clues on how you think it might impact things like valuations. Um, you don't have to be silent on that. You you know, investors are receiving a whole bunch of informa- new information like we like we discussed and helping them sort through it and understand sort of the various levels of materiality to your business will be incredibly helpful. I think both for you as the preparer and, and communication, but also for the investment community as they try to you know make sure that they're using this information in a way that's helpful and additive. All right. Well, I can echo what you just said and say that. Uh, insights from the two of you have been incredibly helpful. So I appreciate you both joining and uh, definitely look forward to having you back as this progresses and we and we see you know where all these proposals land and then as people start reporting. So thanks so much for joining me today. That does it for today. Join me back here next week for new podcast episodes. 
So that you never miss any of our audio content, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com slash structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.